tuning in to our Neighborhood Church podcast. Join us on Sunday at any of our locations. To learn more about our church, visit neighborhoodchurch.com or download our church app. Well, good morning. Good morning. I'm uh, Steve Ellis. I'm one of the recycled elders here at uh, Cypress Church. What a great morning, huh? Man, so far. We're not those videos and testimonies awesome. No. It's, like, it's like a balm for the soul. I got, I got to tell you, I have a special affinity in my heart for that place called Hume Lake. If you've not been there, you, you've got to go. That place is anointed. There's no better way to say it. And, and when you're, you feel it. When you're up there, you do. Uh, Romans 8.16 says, the spirit bears witness with our spirit. And indeed he does. That is a, a special place. I was a 15-year-old fatherless kid going into my first year of high school when I first went to Hume Lake. I didn't want to go. I mean, I didn't, I didn't know anything about it. You know, summer camp. That's, you know, hello, mother. Hello, father. You know, that, that's what was in my mind. And, uh, but my youth pastor had been bugging me all year, you know, you got to go. So I scraped together the $35 that it cost to go to camp back then. This was 1972, okay? And that week changed my life forever. The Spirit of God reached down and grabbed me in a way I had never experienced. The director of Hume Lake back then was a guy named Kenny Poor. You know, every one of us, if, if we were to take an inventory, there'd be a handful of people in our lives that have had a profound impact on our direction. And Kenny Poor was one of those for me. He was an ex-used car salesman turned evangelist. And he spoke the word of God with humor and passion and reason in a way I'd never heard before. The Bible all of a sudden came to life. You know, it just wasn't a, a bunch of stories and archaic statutes about what you weren't supposed to eat. It was the creator's handbook for life. Everything necessary for life and godliness is in this book, 2 Peter 1.3. The Lord gave me a hunger for his word. He provoked me. And, and it is so good to hear the stories of these young people who, whose hearts have been stirred by the word of God. I love hearing the witness of God's people, don't you? Amen. I mean, just last week on Father's Day, we heard Jacob Measuresmith's testimony, one of our interns. He gave his testimony as he honored his parents, his mother, Marie, from Puerto Rico, his father, Doug, from Nebraska. And fun little fact, because of that testimony, I found out Jacob and I are related it's true. You know, he talked about his father, Doug, from this little town in Nebraska. Well, my youngest daughter, Megan, fell in love with and married a cattle rancher from a little town in Nebraska. And it just so happens that Jacob's father, Doug, and Megan's mother-in-law, Carmen, are cousins. So Jacob and I are related distantly by that man. I don't know what that makes us, you know, third cousins twice removed or Whatever. I knew there was a reason I liked that kid the very first time he spoke up here. I just didn't know why, but now I do. So, so Jacob, wherever you are this morning, go Huskers. 
fun stuff. But you know, I can't wait to get to heaven because we're all gonna have little stories like that. You know, when we, when we find out who witnessed to who, who spoke the word to whose heart, who, who the spirit used to, you know, finally get a hold of you and me. Because we're all family. We're all gonna be able to trace it back to you know, one of the, the first apostles, followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, or, or, or maybe even the Lord himself. Every one of us is connected in that way. It's why we say our Father who art in heaven, right? So my brothers and sisters, we have a lot to celebrate as a family. So let's take a look at the Father's words. We're continuing in a series in the Psalms called Songs to Live By, And this morning, we're going to be meditating on Psalms 98. It's a short psalm, only nine verses, but it's a song of celebration. A celebration of the Lord as our deliverer, our mighty king, and a righteous judge. So let's take a a look. I'm just going to read it. Will you stand with me as we read the word of God? Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord. Oh, sing a new song. For he has done wonderful things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his loving kindness and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth and sing for joy and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Short, shout joyfully before the King, the Lord. Let the sea and all it contains, the world and all those who dwell in it, let the rivers clap their hands. Let the mountains sing together for joy before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Let's pray. Father, you are such a mighty God. We thank you for the wonderful things you have done. We thank you for the testimonies of the young people that we have heard and and the work that you have begun and will continue in their lives as well as ours. Give us a a time in the word. Speak to us, Lord, from your word, which is allowed alive through the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask you these things for your glory and our blessing. Amen. You may be seated. Psalm 98, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. A new song. Psalm 98 is a messianic song. It's, uh, it describes God's redemption of creation and the wonderful rejoicing that will ensue. His salvation is made known. We've got the rivers clapping. We've got the mountains singing for joy in verse 8. According to the Jewish Midrash, a a group of rabbinical writings collected about the 5th century BC, Psalms 98 will be the 10th and final song sung by the Jewish nation upon the appearance of Messiah the King. A new song for a new season. We've got the 4th of July coming up next Sunday. And last Sunday was the first day of summer. So we are officially in a new season, the summer season. You know, this planet that we live on, it it takes this long orbit around the sun every year. And because of its tilt, we experience 
these seasons every we you know not to the extremes other parts of the country do but every year we have the the flowers of spring and the green of summer and the the winds and the chill of the fall and then the long nights and short days of summer and then they start all over again it's how it is with life it is so like the seasons of life you really can't miss that parallel the Lord set it up that way. Life has its seasons. Whether I'd like to admit it or not, I am entering the, the winter season of my time on this planet. The leaves are starting to fall off, and um, we've got grandkids running around. So it's a new season of life for me. To everything, there is a season. Solomon said that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. To everything, there is a season, and to every purpose, under heaven, there is a time. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, where this passage is, he, he gives this whole list. You know, it's amazing. He even says there's a time for war and a time for peace, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. That was last year during COVID. You know? There's a season for everything. Down through the history of the world, there have been what theologians refer to as dispensations. They're kind of like seasons. There was this whole season in which God revealed himself primarily through the oral transmission of the understanding that he had given directly to the first man, Adam. There was no real written record necessarily no Bible, but there was nonetheless still an understanding of what God expected of man, the commandments written on the heart of man innately and the testimony of nature itself. There was that season. And then God chose Abraham and revealed himself to that man and makes of that man a nation and delivers the scripture to that nation. And there is that season of the old covenant the commandments and the required sacrifices and woven throughout the old covenant was the promise of a new covenant. The promise of a savior, an ultimate sacrifice that would take care of mankind's sin once and for all. The old covenant had its season and then came Christ. I love how the apostle Paul says it in Galatians chapter four. When the fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son. When it was time, seasons came and went, but when it was time, he came, when it was that season. The law had been made known, the commandments, nobody could live them, and man had plenty of opportunity to prove that. The prophets had come, each one giving a piece of the puzzle, and in the fullness of time, Christ came. And, and what a unique time it was. You know, the Lord came after all the empires of man had had their little shot. The Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks. And the, and the last world empire was the Roman Empire that had connected the entire world through a system of roads and a language and an economy. There was a lot in place when the fullness of time came. Even that place that seems so insignificant to the rest of the world, that little nation called Israel was right at the junction of the three major continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa. And that little town 
called Nazareth and those villages around that lake called Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee, were right on the side of the road, that Roman road that connected those three continents. It really wasn't a coincidence. It really wasn't so insignificant because the Lord in choosing that place to come, as humble as it was, was really a statement about his love for all the nations, his love for the entire world, and his plan to deliver the good news to the entire world. The Jews rejected him as a nation. Their federal heads speaking for them said, we will not have this man to be a ruler over us, and they demanded that he be crucified. They rejected him as a whole, but there was a remnant. There still is, to this day, a remnant. And so the gospel went out to the nations. Through a persecution that began in Jerusalem, through the next centuries, the Romans would would persecute hotly this thing called the church, these people called the Christians, and and would drive them, exile them sometimes, and, and sent the gospel along with them. And so the good news went out to the whole world, and eventually to your ears and mine. A new song for a new season. Verse 1 says, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done wonderful things. There is a new covenant, a new season. And there is nothing more wonderful than what Christ has done on the cross for us, that deliverance from sin and death where he paid for our sins and all we need to do is accept that gift. Psalms 91.8 says, his right hand and his holy arm have gained the victory. We've probably all heard the phrase at some point, he's my right-hand man. That's not intended as a slight to left-handed people. I'm not picking on you. But it's been widely understood throughout history that the right hand is the seat of power. The right hand held the sword. The shield was in the left. His right hand has gained the victory. And who is at our Father's right hand who has gained the victory? Jesus himself said it in Mark chapter 14 when he's before the Sanhedrin in the middle of the night on trial and they are peppering him. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And he keeps silent. He hasn't said a thing up to this point. And then finally in verse 62, he speaks and says, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming in the clouds of heaven. And they tore their robes and cried, we've heard enough, blasphemy. And there is the witness of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, where at the end of his testimony, he looks up into heaven, full of the Holy Spirit, and says, behold, I see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God. The Apostle Paul makes reference to Jesus taking his place at the right hand of God in Romans 8.34, Ephesians 1.20, Colossians 3.1. It's also in 1 Peter 3.22, Hebrews 10.12, among many others. The Lord is seated at the right hand of power where he intercedes for us. When the accuser of the brethren says, look what he did again. The Lord is there to remind all of heaven, no, no, I paid for that. He belongs to me. She's mine. I can't leave this topic without at least 
referencing Revelation chapter 1, where, where the apostle John sees the vision of the risen Christ, and there is a fire in his eyes because of the coming judgment. And John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. And he laid his right hand upon me and said, do not be afraid, for I am the first and the last. You know, John could have said, just, you know, he came over and picked me up. But John makes the point to say he laid his right hand on me. The hand of power, the hand of judgment, the hand that's going to bring the gavel down. And he said, don't be afraid. You know, that hand has a big old hole in it because he laid it down willingly for you and me. So there is nothing for us to fear. Verses two and three of Psalm 98 says, the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of all the nations. Although God himself is not seen, so much of what he has done is seen. The obvious design in creation, the miracle of life, the the fact that we innately know right and wrong, God's written it on our hearts, the, the fact that we know there is something more, something beyond just this physical existence. The Apostle Paul makes this his very argument in Romans chapter 1 when he says the existence of God and his power and holiness are so obvious and apparent that everyone everywhere is without excuse. God has made it known. He's not hiding the truth about himself. You've just got to be willing to see. The Lord is mighty. He's mighty indeed. And we are encouraged in verses four through six of Psalm 98 to make some noise in the worship and celebration of our King. Shout joyfully, get loud, play the harp and the, and the trumpet, get a band together. It's, it's, it's right here in the book. Victor and the worship team fulfill that commandment for us so wonderfully every Sunday. And as long as we're on the subject of music, can we just remind ourselves that style is neutral? Content is what matters. The, the harp and the trumpet mentioned here, those just happen to be the instruments of the day. You know, everyone has their favorite style of music. A few weeks ago during the question session, the, the question was, what's your favorite worship song? That was an easy one for me, the doxology. We actually happened to sing it that Sunday. But I grew up in a church where we sang the doxology every Sunday. The congregation would rise and a cappella, we would sing out, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And our voices would echo through the chamber. That's worship for me. But everyone's got their own favorite. Every culture has its own unique style of music. There's no right style. I remember back in the 70s and 80s and all the debate about whether we should have drums in church or, or electric guitars. Style is neutral. I, I learned that lesson as the father of a young teenager who in the early 1990s had started listening to a brand of music that was part punk, part reggae, part big band part rap called ska. Yeah, 
Honestly, to me, it was just noise and a lot of yelling. It would come out of his bedroom and grate on my nerves until one day I confronted him and said, what are you listening to? And, and he defended it. He said, these are, this is a Christian band. This, this, these are worship songs. And I wanted to say, that is not worship music. But I, I held my tongue. I said, give me that CD. And I, I put it in the car and I, I listened to it on the way to work. I had to listen several times to understand what they were actually singing because my ear was not attuned to that style of music. But once I was able to understand the words of those songs, I had to admit, whether I wanted to or not, that that was the word of God being proclaimed. The truth of God was going out in that music. And I gave him back the CD and I said, listen all you want. You know, it actually grew on us over time to the point where the Orange County Supertones became one of the favorite groups for our family to listen to on the road to Hume Lake, traveling back and forth every summer, you know. Adonai, Adonai, hey. I still remember some of it, you know, even after all those years, right? Style is new. I had this conversation with Doug Ferguson a couple of weeks ago. You know, Doug, he's a former worship pastor, and he plays in the, in the worship team up here every Sunday. And we were just, I was musing about, you know, the changes in uh, music in the church over the years. And he commented, you know, yeah, you know, one of these days we're going to be singing rap music up here. And I'll hate it, but we will sing a joyful noise. I'd, I'd like to see that, actually, someday. I think that would be fun, don't you? Can you imagine Victor and the neighborhood crew up here, you know? We make a joyful noise as we praise our Holy Savior. You know, some, something like that, you know? May, maybe someday, I don't know. Yeah. To everything there is a season. There is a time for quiet contemplation. And there's a time to get loud. So make a joyful noise, however that suits you. And then in verse seven and eight, we have this picture of all creation coming to life on the day of the Lord. The apostle Paul says in Romans eight, that all creation groans and longs for its redemption. And the day is coming and I can't wait when all creation will be set free from the corruption of sin and death. Because Adam's sin did not just sever his connection to the creator. When Adam fell, the entire world broke. And when this work in process that we are is finally complete, on that day when the Lord fully takes possession of his inheritance, the mountains are going to sing. All of creation will rejoice in its salvation because, verse 9, he is coming to judge the world in righteousness and equity. No more injustice. No more corruption. A lot of talk about injustice and equity in the culture today, and not all of it is biblical. Everyone wants equality, right? A lot of talk today, not just about equality of opportunity, but equality of results. It's kind of like the adult version of the trophy generation where everybody gets an award for presentation and participation. I want what he has. It's not fair that he has more than me. 
I was born in poverty. He was born in wealth. The scripture makes it clear that we are all fearfully and wonderfully made by our creator and we are all equally valuable and precious in his sight. But we are all not the same. The gospels make this point. Matthew 25 is just one example, the parable of the talents. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like this. One guy gets five, one guy gets two, one guy gets one. I mean, there are distinctions. You know what it means to judge in equity? It's Jesus sitting at the entrance of the temple, watching all the rich men file in and dump their gold into the collection box. When along comes a poor widow and she drops in two small copper coins. And seeing all of this, the Lord turns to his disciples and he says, that poor widow gave more than all of the others because they gave out of their abundance. But she gave all that she had, everything she had to live on. The issue is not what you start with or what you have. The question is, what are you going to do with what you got? We're not going to be evaluated on the basis of what somebody else has. To whom much is given, much is required. What are you going to do with what you've got? Do we just give our time, treasure, and talent out of our abundance? Or do we give sacrificially and offer the Lord all that we are and all that we have? Philippians 2.7 says he gave up everything for us. He emptied himself. And being found in the appearance of a man, humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross. And for that reason, all judgment has been committed to him. And he who sees all will judge in equity. So what are we going to do with what we've got? It's a new season. Will you pray with me? Father God, we, uh, we come before you humbly. You have done wonderful things. You are a great and a mighty God, and we so look forward to the day when all creation will sing of its redemption. Lord, you are the deliverer, you are the mighty king. We ask that you would guide us and teach us through your word. We pray these things in your name. Amen.